right now on Matter of Fact. Where am I gonna be delivering my baby? It's a harsh reality for expectant mothers in rural West Texas, traveling hundreds of miles to give birth. They told me that I would need to be transferred to another hospital. What's the solution for women bringing a new life into this world when they don't have access to maternity care? Plus, the Supreme Court takes up race-based college admissions with a new justice on the bench. What the challengers are asking them to do is to say we're not going to analyze whether or not there was discrimination uh, because that doesn't matter. We explore the arguments that could sway the justices and impact future generations of students. And sniffles, coughs, aches, and breathing issues. Flu season is here and COVID never left. A leading epidemiologist has advice on handling the new round of viral infections threatening America's children. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Having a baby is dangerous. The United States is the only developed country where maternal mortality has increased. There are many factors. Access to maternity care in the U.S. has been declining for decades. Labor and delivery units are expensive for hospitals to maintain. They have to be open 24-7 and staffed for surgery at all times. And that puts pressure on hospitals with smaller teams, like many in rural areas. Texas leads the nation in maternity ward closures. Only 40% of rural hospitals in Texas have labor and delivery care. Some women have to drive hours just to give birth. Our correspondent, Leonie Lacani, went to West Texas and followed expectant mothers for a first-hand look at their long and tough journey. This remote town in West Texas is home to fewer than 400 people. This is where Carrie Gonzalez and her husband decided to make their home six years ago. We were living in Austin, which is where I grew up, and um, we were just kind of sick of city life. We ended up here kind of by accident. We found property and started building a house here. Carrie's bringing up her first child here. Little Paloma is happy and carefree today, but her journey into the world was a harrowing one. We had her a year ago, approximately, and um, we had planned to have her at home. But as Carrie approached full term, her blood pressure became a concern. I called my midwife and she consulted with my doctor and she told me that I should go to the hospital and to just have them check me out. While the nearest hospital was just 30 minutes away, the labor and delivery unit periodically closed due to staff shortages. The doctor came in and told me that I needed to be induced as soon as possible and that I was gonna have my baby now. So at midnight, they were gonna be closed. They told me that I would need to be transferred to another hospital. The nearest hospital with specialized care was two and a half hours away. Given her condition, Carrie had to be airlifted there. Thankfully, Paloma arrived safely and the Gonzalez's were able to go home after a day. The cost of the delivery for us was, I think it was 7,000. And that doesn't include the $94,000 helicopter ride. We're still dealing with that working through the insurance company to get that paid for. Aside from the potential costs, the distances are the biggest challenge for safe childbirths in remote areas like these, according to Dr. John Ray. You know, I think geography is just hard to appreciate, I think, how difficult that makes things. Ray travels between three cities every week to see patients. 
The furthest is Presidio, a city near the Mexican border, 90 miles from his home. Can't tell you how many times I've heard stories where someone drove from Presidio all the way to Odessa for a follow-up visit, probably 250 miles one way. Like most doctors in rural areas, Ray is a family medicine physician. He says a third of his patients are obstetrics. In this border town, this clinic is the only opportunity for many expectant mothers to see a doctor unless they travel for hours. Muchas gracias, Carla. You can see me in Presidio once a week, um, but I'm not here every day. You see the baby and I'll double check on them. A lot of times people come multiple times, you know, if you have contractions or if you think your water broke, but when you drive 90 miles to get to the hospital, that's a big difference. Dental assistant Brittany Alonso gets general checkups at the Presidio Clinic, but has to drive an hour and a half for her baby's ultrasounds. And there's no option to deliver her baby here. Whenever I knew that I was pregnant, my first thing was like, where am I going to be delivering my baby? And then since the Alpine Hospital, it's been closing, not the hospital, but where they deliver babies, it's been closing for days. So that's one of the concerns. The labor and delivery unit in the Alpine Hospital is now fully open, but Brittany's worried staff shortages could change that. It might mean giving birth in the emergency room, where not all nurses are specially trained for deliveries. There's also no newborn intensive care unit in case there's a need. The next specialist hospital is more than 200 miles away in Midland, Odessa. I might be um, moving to Midland because of the, um, like, where am I going to be delivering? So I might be going over there. Wow, so that you're moving completely just to be closer to the hospital. Yes. Uprooting her life to give birth. Carrie Gonzalez says she would do the same next time. You had this whole plan for how you wanted your birthing process to be. It didn't work out that way. So how does it make you feel now? I mean, it makes me sad, really. I mean, I feel really lucky that we had a healthy baby, but that should be the minimum when you're having a baby. For Matter of Fact, I'm Leonie Lacani in West Texas. Next on Matter of Fact, more than 40 years of affirmative action law hangs in the balance. So why is the court considering that? SCOTUS Blog's Amy Howe sets the stage for what's ahead for the Supreme Court with two high-profile cases. Let's go back and look at the history. Plus, it's been more than 67 years since the murder of Emmett Till. My hope is that we empower communities across this nation to look in their own backyards. We'll take you to a place in Mississippi, working to make sure everyone knows this painful history. And later, mountains, rivers, and incredible views, all accessible with just a library card. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. More than 40 years of affirmative action law hangs in the balance now as the Supreme Court must decide if it's constitutional to consider race in college admissions. The affirmative action case involves minority admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. 
Two lawsuits brought by the group Students for Fair Admissions claim the practices at both schools discriminate against Asian American applicants. Both schools deny discrimination and say race is a small factor. Before her death, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said she thought the issue had been permanently settled. But like Roe versus Wade, the new conservative-leaning justices appointed by former President Donald Trump may be ready to break precedent again. I'm joined by Amy Howe. She's a legal expert and co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. Amy Howe, nice to see you. Give us a longer, uh, more in-depth look at how we've gotten to this affirmative action case that's now before the court. To start, back in 2003, the Supreme Court in a case called Grutter versus Bollinger ruled that the University of Michigan could consider race as part of its admissions process when it has a compelling interest in having a diverse student body. So the lawsuits in this case were filed in 2014 against Harvard University, the nation's oldest university, and the University of North Carolina, the nation's oldest public university, alleging that those schools impermissibly consider race as part of their undergraduate admissions process. The group, Students for Fair Admissions, came to the Supreme Court asking the justices to review those decisions and to hold that the Greta decision uh, should be overruled. So why is the court considering that? Part of the answer is there's been a change in how the court looks from the last time this was considered. The makeup of the court was different. It was a conservative court, but not as conservative as it is now. The Grutter decision was a five to four decision by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. In her decision for the majority back in 2003, said we're upholding the university's consideration of race right now, but we hope that in 25 years, universities will no longer consider race. So we're, we're not at 25 years yet, but we are at 19 years. The lower court decision ruled that there was no discrimination against Asians. Um, so in order to strike down affirmative action, wouldn't then the court have to find otherwise? I think that the challenger's argument is that even if it doesn't actually have an effect on Asian American students, that the constitutional violation is there because of the classification, uh, you know, sort of the, the preference for uh, other, other students, but certainly the argument that the universities would make, the idea that the lower courts found that these policies do not, in fact, discriminate against Asian American students. Justice Jackson is new to the court. Give me a sense of how she was framing some of these um, conversations. Justice Jackson has only been on the court for days in terms of hearing oral arguments, but it does seem as if in terms of her comfort level, she's been there for a couple of years. And she will actually not participate in the Harvard case because until very recently, she served on Harvard's Board of Overseers. But she will participate in the University of North Carolina case. And she will bring, I think, a perspective that she voiced during the oral argument in a major voting rights case during her first week on the bench. And she said, look, you're arguing that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which provides equal protection under the laws for everyone, was intended to be colorblind. She said, but, but the people who wrote that provision wrote it to help former slaves ensure that they could have the same rights as everyone else. She said, this was not intended to be a race blind provision. This was intended to be a race conscious 
provision. And there's a very similar argument that the universities make in these cases. And I imagine she will bring it up at the oral argument in these cases. Amy Hall, always nice to see you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's always great to talk to you. you bet. Coming up, two white men brutally murdered 14-year-old Emmett Till and got away with it. It was here in this courtroom that two men got off for murder. And so we decided that we needed to begin by apologizing to the Till family. How this Mississippi town is making amends for justice denied. And later, there's a CDC alert as more children are contracting severe respiratory illnesses. So what do we do as parents? How to keep your child safe as flu season gets underway. It's been more than 67 years since the death of Emmett Till. The 14-year-old had traveled from Chicago to Sumner, Mississippi to spend time with his extended family. While there, he was accused of flirting with a white woman, Carolyn Bryant. Later, Bryant's husband and brother-in-law kidnapped Till, brutally beat him, and then threw him in the Tallahatchie River after tying barbed wire and a 75-pound cotton gin around his neck. Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, made the decision to have an open casket funeral to show the brutality of her son's death. The two men were acquitted of murder by an all-white jury. Decades later, Bryant admitted she lied. Mamie Till Mobley never stopped fighting for her son's justice. A new film about her life titled Till is now in theaters. The film is another step in preserving the Till legacy. Our correspondent, Diane Roberts, introduces us to a young Mississippi native committed to telling the Till's family story. The only version of civil rights I was taught was that Rosa Parks sat down and Martin Luther King stood up and everybody was free. 30-year-old Patrick Weems grew up in Mississippi. And it wasn't until I was 18 and I took a specific course on African-American studies that I learned about Emmett Till. When I learned about what happened, the injustices, but also that young people made change. It compelled me to want to be a part of that change, too. Determined, Patrick said about the work of preserving the Mississippi courtroom at the center of the Till story and the task of making amends. It was here in this courtroom that two men got off for murder. And so we decided that we needed to begin by apologizing to the Till family before we could begin with our museum. And out of that apology, we decided to restore our courthouse back to the way it looked in 1955 and open up the Emmett Till Interpretive Center. That was 10 years ago, when as a 20-year-old college student at Ole Miss, Patrick took the lead in seeking racial reconciliation. So in 55, uh, Carolyn Bryant told this sensationalized story, and she did it to kind of persuade people to think that what her husband did was okay. Played into the myth that black men are, are rapists, uh, will come after white women, and white men, women need to be protected. And because Emmett Till can't tell his story, Patrick does every day in his role as the center director. After the trial, people were embarrassed, ashamed that this had happened in their community, especially after the two men confessed to the murder. So for us to finally break that silence was for us a big step towards uh, healing. Patrick says there was no justice for Emmett in this courtroom, but he wants to educate future generations 
in hopes of racial equality and equal justice. For us to be a part of actually coming to the table and doing the hard work of telling the truth and speaking openly about race, uh, my hope is that we empower communities across this nation to look in their own backyards and understand how our history is impacting our current conversations around race. Ahead on Matter of Fact, more children are going to the emergency room for respiratory illnesses as flu season ramps up and COVID sticks around. Is it unsettling? Yes. Will it be disruptive? We talked to an epidemiologist about what parents and kids should do. And later, California is home to the most state and national parks in the country. It's just another good reason to have a library card. How one initiative is making park access as simple as checking out a book. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. We're heading into flu season. Aside from polio and monkeypox cases and the coronavirus, other common illnesses and viral infections are taking hold again, especially in children. The CDC recently issued an alert about an increase in pediatric hospitalizations from severe respiratory illnesses. So what does this mean for parents and kids as it gets colder? Caitlin Jedalina is an epidemiologist and publisher of Your Local Epidemiologist Newsletter. We don't know if this is an early warning sign of a bad viral season or if it's just happening earlier. What do we do as parents? Well, one, make sure you have a pediatrician already lined up. The other thing is we have a flu vaccine. We have a COVID-19 vaccine. Those are the best things we can do for our kids and ourselves going into this winter season. Viral activity varies state to state. North Carolina and Texas have seen a spike in respiratory infections, as has the city of Chicago. The CDC guidance remains the same. Stay at home when you're sick and wear a mask in crowded places. Next on Matter of Fact, a view for everyone. How California is leveling the playing field to help more people enjoy the state and national parks. Finally, California is most often ranked as the most beautiful state in the union. It's home to 270 state parks and nine national parks, more than any other state. But accessibility is a totally different story. The Center for American Progress reports people of color are three times more likely to live in a nature-deprived area, and the cost of admission to the nation's parks can be a barrier. Thanks to California's Outdoor Access for All initiative, getting into a state park is now as easy as borrowing a book from the library. The Park Pass allows up to nine people in one vehicle free access to the parks. And it's working. 5,000 park passes were distributed to more than 1,000 library branches across the state. 63% went to people who identify as black, indigenous, or non-white. So it's just another good reason to have a library card. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.